the last three lines, the Chinese for that um, is just the last, uh, next to last line over on the far right where it says, UB Fosor. Okay, do you all find that place? Let's put our palms together and read that. Starting, it's the bottom. Go up one line, go to the right. UB Fosor. I'll give you a line and you give it back. UB Fosor. Gong Jing Ting Fa Wen Yi Shou Chi Chi Zu Xiu Xing. Okay, over to the right. In the presence of those Buddhas, he reverently listens to the Dharma. And having heard it, he accepts it and supports it and cultivates it perfectly. All right. This is the flower garland, the flower adornment, the Avatamsaka Sutra, Huayanjing. And we're in the fourth ground. And while I was away in Australia, um, a procession of uh, distinguished monks and nuns were here and lay people to uh, open up the sutra for you. And um, I'm not going to try to go back. Uh, that would be disrespectful, I think, to everybody who worked on, on this. So we'll just go from here and the bodhisattva is almost ready to finish the fourth ground. We're, we're nearly done. We only have a bit more prose, and then we get into the verses, the repetitive verses. So we're, we're almost done here. Um, <clears throat> so it says, in the presence of those Buddhas, this bodhisattva reverently listens to the Dharma. Having heard the Dharma, he accepts it, supports it, and cultivates it perfectly. So we have a bodhisattva who is... Um, on the fourth stage of his cultivation. And we've found out that he is uh, here in the Dharma assembly of Buddhas, many Buddhas that he can see, and he sees himself, uh, and I guess others could see him too, going to where the Buddhas are and sitting down and listening to what they say. He's listening to the Dharma they speak, very much like us tonight, listening to the sutra. And it tells us what he does as he does that, as he goes to the, to the, the place, places of the Buddhas, to the Bodhimandas. What would that be like? Well, we can imagine um, sitting in the Buddhist Dharma Assembly. It would be splendid. It would be full of light. Um, imagine how your skin would feel at the place of the Buddhas. You would feel very comfortable indeed. Oh, my goodness. You'd feel like this is where... Don't, don't worry about that. Don't, don't freak out there. Say Tachima. That's all right. Don't you, otherwise, you go nuts. You know, like, let him be. So he's got to listen to his Dharma, too. So, um, so it w- you would feel like you had been waiting for this moment, you know. Plus, there would be a feeling at the Buddha's assembly that you belong there. And I think there would be a feeling that somehow it was the center of the universe. And there was nowhere else to move. You know the old joke, the old down east joke about the the city slicker who is in his sports car and he gets lost up in the state of Maine. He's traveling in the state of Maine. And uh, if anybody knows, been to the state of Maine, you know what's coming, don't you? 
he would be in a back road and, you know, got lost, got off the highway, and he's in his sports car. And there's nothing around there but lots of dark forests and, and mountains in the distance. And he pulls up, and he sees an old-timer. He sees a main, a down-east farmer standing there on the fence, stick of grass in his mouth, chewing on the grass. <coughs> and the city slicker, of course, assumes that this is a, a hick. And so every bit of him drips condescension. And he goes up, he says, Old-timer, he says, with his New York accent, how do I get to Millinocket? How do I get to Millinocket? The old-timer looks at him and says, Stranger, don't you move a dad-burned inch, he says. Don't you move a dad-burned inch. In other words, you're in Millinocket, right? When you have to translate the jokes, you guys are way too slow. Come on. Okay. Don't you move a dad-burned inch, he says. That's how they talk up there. So, in the Buddha's Dharma assembly, you don't want to move a dad-burned inch. You're there. You're in Milanaka. And it's just, you feel like the wind and the water is all coming from inside. And I suspect, I suspect, as you hear the Buddha Dharma, in the Buddha's Dharma assembly, you have this uncanny sense that it's being spoken inside you. Probably. That it's the voice of the Buddha is behind you, beneath you, above you, beside you, on all sides. And yet, those truths are coming from inside. And I suspect, although if we're using just our own normal vision, it wouldn't be so clear, but I suspect you feel that the Buddha is speaking light. Right? That light is something your eyes see, it's not something your your ears hear. But I sense that there's just waves of light coming off the Buddha, and it's the Dharma he's speaking. But it's much more like opening up truths from within that you already knew, but you're hearing them fresh. You know, it's like, oh yes, this is that I yeah there, and. I think there's also a feeling in the Buddhist Dharma assembly of absolute boundlessness, that it doesn't stop. This, those truths just keep connecting and connecting and connecting and connecting. And it's probably a feeling of, as Shifu would say, a sense of totally bound up nowhere, no ties no limits, no obstacles, no blockage. And it just flows, you know, that's, that's the feeling. And it's well-being. It's a sense of real well-being. And the, there, you know, you could go on and on in this vein, the sense that as the Buddha is speaking, you understand everything he's saying. And it's funny, you didn't know you spoke Buddha before. But he's speaking, or is that the Buddha speaks English, or if you prefer Vietnamese, it's Vietnamese, or if you prefer Guangdong, the Buddha speaks perfect, can't you know, Hong Kong accent Guangdong, and if you speak Hokkien, the Buddha is speaking Hokkien, and you know he's he's coming from inside you. It's like the universal translator, and it's, it's like that, and probably sitting there. Um, the Buddha is deliberately 
chopping away your doubts. Doubts you didn't realize that you had are being answered. So that it's like if you've made a jigsaw puzzle, you know how jigsaw puzzles, you, they're just a random box of pieces and you put them in together and put them together and at one point there's a picture. The tabletop is a picture, you know, because you finally fit the pieces together. It's like that. Now, what I'm describing is coming out of my imagination, but not entirely, because as the, the Ten Practices chapter tells us, the, um, a bodhisattva, mind you, not the Buddha, but a bodhisattva who's on the ninth practice, the stage of cultivation known as the nice practice, has the ability called toloni, dharani. And what's the state of dharani like? It's an ability that comes from inside you that you cultivate that allows you to hear the questions posed to you by, it says, infinite, limitless nayutas of kotis of living beings which is to say a lot of living beings, each one in his own, her own language, each one asking you a different question. And the Bodhisattva, it says, in the, in the space of a single thought, which is to say, just like that, hears all those questions, each in their different language, utters a single sound, and is able to answer all the questions and resolve any doubts that living beings have, just like that. And, you know, on one hand, that's far out. And on the other hand, you think, how is that possible? How is it that the Bodhisattva, in the presence of all those Buddhas, hears the Dharma, accepts it, supports it, and cultivates it? I think it's because the samadhi that the Buddha is in when he speaks and the Bodhisattva is in when he listens, or she there is a level of mind that goes deeper to what? The roots of the mind, you might say. And at that place, in the roots of the mind, all of the language that is spoken out of the branch tips comes back to some very fundamental symbols or templates, archetypes, right? And from that place, you hear one and you at the, the root and you have all the branch tips. Single root goes out to the 10,000 branch tips and all 10,000 branch tips return to that single root. So the Bodhisattva is able to go to that root and hear them all. So I suspect something like that. So there's an inner experience and an outer experience of hearing the Buddha speak the Dharma. If the Bodhisattva were not accepting this, then he would not be what we'd describe as a bodhisattva. What is the bodhisattva who's there listening to this? He is a hard worker. She is somebody who works by vows. When the bodhisattva leaves the Buddhist Dharma assembly, he or she is going back home to solve problems for people. Because the bodhisattva all day long, morning to night, is a problem solver. Somebody who is, gets all kinds of problems. And where is he or she going to come up with the solutions? From their wisdom. 
Where does the wisdom come from? Well, their own nature, but only after it's been cultivated and taught by the Buddha. That's why they show up, is because they have problems they've got to solve. When they go home, it's Mr. and Mrs. Wynn, and it's Mr. and Mrs. Chakraborty, and it's Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, who have problems that they come to the Bodhisattva with, and the Bodhisattva's got to come up with it. He's got to answer the problem. And the only way he can, or she can, is by hearing the Buddha from dharmas, hearing the dharma from the Buddhas in assemblies like this, where he knows, okay, that's, what I, that's the answer. That was a hard question they asked me. I told him to wait till I'd taken a, taken a break and gone to the dharma assembly, and now that I'm, once I'm back, I'll know what to say. So that's why the Bodhisattva is doing this, because he's on contract, you could say, which is to say his vows, to teach these living beings. And the answer to their questions is in the Dharma that he's listening to. That's why. That's what he's doing there, is he's uh, getting medicines for his doctor's bag so he can go back and dispense the medicines and cure their illnesses. Right? It's, it's very, very practical. That's why he's there. Of course he supports it and cultivates it perfectly because now he can't. I remember um, when uh, we'd listen to uh, Shurfu, Master Shuenhua, we'd listen to him speak Dharma, and you'd realize that you were getting, you know, a finger of two hands of what he was saying. And yet, Shurfu would always uh, aim his teachings to the audience in front of him. But... So you were, you were getting the language you could understand and the ideas you could understand. But every now and then, Shurfu would um, uh, show a little more. And you'd realize that he had been pasteurizing the milk so you could drink it. It wasn't raw milk. And there'd be somebody else in the audience, and Shurfu would, would give a different twist to it, and you'd realize, man, I'm just getting a teaspoon of the ocean. You know, um, so the Bodhisattva is now able to get a bunch of the Dharma that he hears, not just these little drips and drabs, because um, their capacity, their wisdom is deeper. Their paramitas are more developed. So he accepts the Dharma, supports it, and cultivates it, because he knows as soon as he gets home, he's got to use it. He's taking this medicine back so he can dispense it, that's what the Bodhisattva is about. Could we turn over, please, 18 and 19? There's more. Here we go. Uh, I'll, I'll read it. Please listen here. Fu yu bi zhu fo fa zhong chu jia xiu dao yu gong xiu zhi shen xin xin jie Jing Wu Liang Bai Chen Yi Nayo Taji Ling Zhu Shangan Juan Fu Ming Jing. Moreover, within all these Buddha's Dharma, he leaves the householder's life to cultivate the way. He then cultivates and regulates even more his deep mindset of faith and understanding. Passing through limitless hundreds of thousands of millions of Nayutas of eons, he makes brighter and more pure all of his roots of goodness. 
okay, what do we get in this paragraph? We get the image of a monk or nun. There's a, a, a change of status indicated here. Which is interesting because that must mean that before this he was a layman or she was a laywoman. Uh, the bodhisattva on the fourth ground becomes a sangha member, becomes a monastic. That's one idea. Then, another idea is, here he is cultivating to, Im, to deepen his faith and understanding. Should I, I keep going he and she just to make sure that everybody feels comfortable, but I'll, I'll limit it to the he and the she's can fill in the, the S there to make it. This, this is gender nonspecific sutra, but it'll save time if I can do one. So I'll do he and then you all do she in your ear. Okay. So he leaves the householder's life to cultivate the way and he works on his deep mindset of faith and understanding. Look at that English language there. It's shen xin xin jie. That's just the word, Chinese word xin. Jitta, right? It's jitta. And, and we worked so hard to get the best English equivalent. We came up with mindset for the Sanskrit word citta. Cultivates and regulates even more. Mind, a deep mindset of faith and understanding. What's next? A long period of time. The bodhisattva goes through a very long time. That's the next image. And what is he doing? Look at this one. He is... It's it's a the verb is um, a, a subordinate verb, but it's ming jing. He is purifying and making brighter his shangan, his kushala mula, his roots of goodness, his fine human qualities. That's what he's doing. He's making those brighter. He's polishing himself. He's becoming gooder and gooder and gooder. Right? We say better and better and better. He's becoming a better person for a very long time. That's what a bodhisattva does as a monk or nun. Look at that. I think this is fascinating. Right? Number one, it gives us this... That's not one lifetime. That's many, many lifetimes. As a monk or nun, the bodhisattva is working on his virtue, becoming a better person. Right? Think of all the moms and dads he went through. Think of all the brothers and sisters he knew and then said goodbye to at some point. Think of all the pets he owned. Think of all the food he ate, she ate. Imagine. Here's a, here's a description of a, an arc of lifetimes as a monk or nun. Right? Think of all the moms who cried when he became a monk in lifetimes. Right? Mom, are you ready? What about when that little one says, Mom, I'm going to become a monk. Uh, right? Happy, happy cry, happy cry. That's right. Koi? Quiet in. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. So, all, you know, this the sutra gives us kind of this line. It gives us a, a pencil sketch outline. We fill in the colors. We fill in, we make it 3D. We extrude the, the flesh and blood on the skeleton that the sutra gives us of the, the, the outline, the principle, right? So here, what does it say? 
in the Dharma. So meaning this Bodhisattva is already oriented towards spiritual lifestyle. He, she cultivates the way and er, leaves home and cultivates. Comes forth from the householder's life. And cultivates the way. Okay, this is Buddhist jargon. Leaves home to cultivate the way. You know, it's like, if most ordinary people would hear that and go, those, those are four powerful words. Leaves home, cultivates the way. But that's jargon. That makes no sense to most people. Cultivate the way. What? Leave home? Homeless? Homeless person? Why would they do that? And, works on faith and understanding. Okay? Now, the fourth ground is way, way up there. Fourth ground is a profound level of spiritual accomplishment. And yet, look, the Bodhisattva is still working on faith. <coughs> what does that tell you? It tells you that faith is not easy. Real faith. Right? Faith is a, a slowly maturing accomplishment. Genuine faith. That's interesting, isn't it? Why is that so? It's because the Buddha Dharma is not so easy. Um, give you an example. We were talking um, the other day about um, Western Buddhist disciples and the idea of psychic power. There is a cultural bias in the West towards rationality, towards analytic mm, knowledge, things that can be weighed and measured. But if you go to China, an ordinary person is much more ready to accept the idea of dragons. It's kind of built in. And the notion that this individual over here has shandong, psychic ability, it's like, oh, really? Oh, can you tell me my past lives? No. Can you tell me whether I should buy uh, Lehman Brothers stock? You know? Should I go into business or not? You know? That's the things they want to know. Whereas the Westerner would not think of asking some character who says, I have psychic ability. They say, well, you stay away from me. You know? You know, do you a doomsday prophet? You know, are you a cult? We we just we don't we're not ready to accept that, and yet in Asia, much more ready to accept the fact. I'm told in Taiwan, if you are a stockbroker or a real estate broker and you don't have psychic power, you don't get work. People only patronize these stock analysts with psychic abilities. So everybody, renrin do you know. So how interesting that is. Faith and understanding, yeah, because the Dharma comes slow. It's, it's not limited to conscious discrimination. And yet so much of the accomplishments of the West are based on our ability to wield duality and, and keep those two tensions in mind at the same time. To the exclusion of the, uh, you might say, irrational, but the the beyond rational, the super rational.
And it's very, uh, you can say within the Dharma that the, the Buddha Dharma only opens up beyond consciousness. Consciousness is a launching pad for the, the deeper understanding of the Dharma. So, I just want to say, here's our Bodhisattva, fourth ground. That's one beyond one-third of the way home. And he's working on faith, faith and understanding. How interesting. Okay. And now, and that's a long time to do that. And here's the one that I really want to mention, is that his, the, the key to this paragraph is the goodness that all that time, for that long period of time, the Bodhisattva is working on his good human qualities, his kushala mula. That's what he's developing. Not his power, you know, not his, particularly his deep wisdom, of course he is, but this, he's working on his goodness, shangan, his good qualities. How many people uh, would expect this answer of a monk or nun? Why did you leave home? Because I wanted to become a better person. Like, you wouldn't think of this. Why did you? Most people would think you left home because you're broken hearted. Because she left you. You know. Why did you leave home? Uh, went bankrupt. It was an economic decision. Why did you leave home? There's food on the table every day. Most people, you know, it's like, yeah. No, I left home to become a better person. And I did it for a very long time. What is the fourth ground equivalent among the paramitas? Number four is? Bigger. Five points to the lady in black. Vigor, which is not always translated as vigor. It's virya, sometimes translated as. What's another alternative for the fourth paramita, the English? You know? Strength. <coughs> the French say, le force du frappe. Your, your hitting power. The power with which you hit. Your impact. Virya, same word that created the English word viril, virility, meaning strength. Potency. So it's the, the, par, the perfection of potency. And it works as a pair with which other paramita? If you do out of the six, you do two, two, two. Which, which one does it work with? Number three. That's a hint. Number three. Which is what? But is it? Charge of the P. Patience. Okay. The third paramita is patience, and it's a pair with vigor. So, giving and virtue, giving and precepts, patience and vigor. Samadhi and wisdom. That's another way to look at the paramitas, right? So, this is, patience, this is vigor, strength, potency, and it works hand in hand with patience, which was three. Third paramita, where the psychic abilities happened, remember? Shantung. Now, think about that. 
with the first two, the bodhisattva is giving a self away. Working on that big sense of me in the middle. Most important person, me. And once you, kind of the, the giving is the plow on the mind, mind ground, that breaks up that hard soil. And you start to see connections and you give, you give, and you, you give yourself away. And as you do it, you realize that there are modes for body, mouth, and mind that, that are traditionally described as the best way to be a human. What are they called? Precepts. Second paramita. So as you give and as you shake up the, sh- the sureness that you know who you are, you start to mold your way into restraints, less killing, less stealing, less adultery, untrue, you know, broken relationships, less dishonesty, less intoxication. And you move towards what? You move towards ahimsa, harmlessness, and you move towards generosity, and you move towards fidelity and vows, you move towards integrity, and you move towards sobriety and wisdom. So that's the second one. So those two work together. You give the self away and you give the self a shape, the true self of a human. That's what, when you're done with the precepts, you're a true human. Then the bodhisattva is practicing. Come the practices. And the practices have to be done patiently because why? You're rubbing the outflows into a shape. You're giving this plasm, this, this substance of of body, mouth, and mind, a shape. You're putting it into a dharma mold. Think of a cookie cutter mold. You and your mom ever make Christmas cookies where you take dough and you stamp the the gingerbread mold, gingerbread man, like that, and out comes the dough in a gingerbread shape. You all made gingerbread cookies at Christmas? Ah, okay. How many people ever made gingerbread cookies? Okay, two of us. So that, that analogy doesn't work, sorry. <laughs> Bring in another analogy there. So you take a mold, it's made of aluminum usually, or you know, if you've got grandmas, it's really old-fashioned, and you boom, put it over the dough, and there's a gingerbread man. You, know, you put it in the oven, it comes out tasty. So dharmas are like molds. Sometimes the word in Chinese is fa, is you fa this, you, you model it. Right? It's a model, it's a mold, muxing. So you mold with the Dharma. And it's not comfortable because we slop over the edge or we, we're deficient to fit the Dharma. We mold ourselves with the Dharma into the shape of arhats, bodhisattvas, buddhas, sages. That's what the practices do. What's it like to meditate? Hurts the knees. Right. We're fitting the mold bit by bit. After a long time, you fit the mold. But you have to do it patiently and what? Strongly, with vigor, time and time and time again. How many times as you're sitting there in that mold do you think, this is stupid, I'm getting nowhere. Everybody else is having fun. You know, I wonder what my mom's doing. You know, what's my brother? This is my brother's birthday. Why am I sitting here? You know, all those leaves of the calendar go by while you're patiently and vigorously cultivating molds, rebuilding yourself into the Dharma of the Buddha. That's 
patience and vigor. Paramitas. When you do that for a long time, you get samadhi and wisdom, but not right away. That's why the, the two middle steps of the paramitas are do it a long time patiently. Right? Put yourself back in the mold. Get up and sit. Go bow. You know, restrain your tongue. Check your anger. You know, that's the patience and the vigor part. It takes a long time, and you have to. It doesn't feel good for a long time. Then it does. Then you've been reborn from the Dharma. So, that's the idea. Those are the, the paramitas, and the Bodhisattva is there now. He's a number four. He's in the vigor part, and that's why it emphasizes how long this takes, and he is making his goodness brighter. He's shining. She is shining here. Those good roots become really, really bright. Now, we used to talk about Shurfu as just as his personality. Um, sometimes, not often, but sometimes. And when you were around Master Hua, you had a feeling that his his character was a primary color character. Green was pure green. Red was pure red. The blue was bright blue. Shurfu was, you were never in doubt about Shurfu in terms of right and wrong. When something would come up, some issue, and somebody would ask, you know, what do we do about this? Shurfu would be 100% there in that position, whatever it was. His, his rights and his wrongs were indelible. Can't wash it out. His, his nature, I mean, I, I'm not qualified to talk about Shurfu's nature, but as I perceived it in, in issues where it came up, you never had a doubt where Shurfu was on the issue. And if you pursued it, you'd realize, oh, that's because this was right or that was wrong. He was n- not not 1% slippery huato. Never. Shurfu was never in doubt or in, in, at least to us, he would manifest. Never duplicitous or shady or nuancing. Never was. This is right. That doesn't mean hard, but it's clear. You know, I say cardinal colors. Red, not pastel, not murky, but bright red, bright green. In turn, bright blue. You knew where it was. And as a result, you could fit yourself around it. That's, I think, that's what cultivation does, is it makes your wholesome qualities ming, jing, bright and clear. When we're not cultivating, it's like, whatever, dude. You know, I don't know. Well, he paid me to say that, you know. It's like we're all murky about right and wrong. We don't even consider right and wrong. Often it's profit, right? It's advantage. Fame and benefit. That's what we organize ourselves. What color is fame and benefit? It's the color of the moment, right? We don't get to our nature because we're we're still out at the at the 
We're still out at the appetite level. I was hungry for that, and I, I came up, and I just felt like it. Why'd you do that? Well, it felt good. You know. Was it right? I don't know. Who's to say? Well, if you listen to your nature, your nature tells you, because your, our nature has those qualities, goodness in it. So anyway, that's, that's the point I want to make, that if you think about, here's an example, and this is an ugly example, and we may have to erase this from the tape later, but um, I understand that 80% of the American people who were asked said, yes, we favor regulation of guns. Background checks are a good idea, said 80%. We want to know who is buying the gun before we sell them the gun, and until we find out who they are, we don't sell them the gun. 80% of the American people said, yes, that's a good idea. It'd be really good to keep guns out of the hands of people who have mental issues, who are depressed, who have criminal records, who have you know anger issues. That's a really good idea, said 80% of the American people. They put this bill to a vote and 46 senators elected to represent the people said, no, we will not do background checks. And of those 46%, of those 46 of the senators who voted against it, 42 of them had accepted money from the NRA. True. So, where are the good roots involved in people saying it's okay to sell military weapons to civilians sight unseen? We're not talking about a, a handgun. We're talking about automatic weapons that military men have to get a background check before they're given it. Did you see the wonderful ad that was out uh, as before this bill came up? There was this... Uh, uh, I should have downloaded I'd like to show it to everybody because it's, it's a wonderful 30-second ad. There's a ret- returned GI. I've forgotten his name. It's Andrew or somebody. You know, He looks totally middle American, Midwestern guy. And he says, when I was on duty in Iraq, I had to go for a background check before I was issued this. And he holds up this assault weapon, you know, which looks like it's going to kill you. It's a violent, you know, 30 rounds a second kind of gun. And he says, I think it would be a good idea to do the same thing for American citizens. He, and he, then he, he buckles down, puts on his protective goggles, gets ready, braces, and goes like that and shoots off a bunch of rounds into a mocked-up human torso that has water in it. And it punches these holes right in the heart. And it starts to leak water. He says, I think it's right that we ask citizens to go on a background check because that's what I did before I went to Iraq as a GI. How come our citizens can buy them without a background check? And everybody goes, yeah, how come? You know. Well, because money. The NRA, now we're not going to, should, I should stop this. Right? So, the NRA is a lobby for a manufacturer. There's an industry. They are shills to make money. They're not representing wisdom or compassion. So where 
did we lose the touch with the good roots that would say protecting our children, school children, is good. Protecting our wives and our brothers is good. I think it's good to keep killing tools out of the hands of people who shouldn't have killing tools. Not good. That's having unclarity about those good roots, right? Because why? Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Oh yeah, the Holy Quran, do not, do not kill, right? The, the Vedas, Ahimsa, right? The Buddha's precepts, restrain killing. Everybody knows, but we can be confused about it for other issues. Here's my story about Shurfu, who, when you, were th- when you were beside him, you were so clear about what was right and wrong. He just, there was, it had been cultivated so long that it sh- there was nothing on for it. You saw. And further, because Shurfu was such a masterful teacher, you had the feeling that he was, the force of his character was moving you towards the goodness. That the alternative was just not, less and less accessible to you. It just made so much sense to cherish life. You know, it was like killing. Why would I do that? I don't want to be killed. You know, it's so clear. It wasn't. Oh, I don't know. You know, there's reason. There's answer. We the second Second Amendment. You know, no, that's that's confusion. Let's go back to those wholesome qualities that are Ming and Jing. They're bright and pure, progressively, bit by bit. When, how, over lifetimes and lifetimes. It takes a very long time to cultivate those. And that's what the Bodhisattva is doing. That's what he's doing as a monk or nun. Interesting. Now, somebody will say, and please, if you have a question about this, stop me. Do I have to become a left-home person? No, of course not. But here, part of the fourth ground, at this point in the ten, the Bodhisattva is doing it. I think it's interesting that it specifies, isn't it? Why would that hap- Why would it be that this bodhisattva chu jia xiu dao on the fourth ground? I think it's because. Let's put this in the context of where we've been with this. Our bodhisattva, remember back in the third ground, or was it on the fourth ground, where the bodhisattva is seeing conditioned dharmas dissolve all around him. He's, his wisdom is such now that he can see how stuff doesn't, doesn't last. Stuff breaks up, changes. And when that happens, people hurt. Because we, we love things and we hate things. And we don't want to be with the stuff that we hate. We don't want to lose the stuff we love. And so he sees that everywhere. And then the, the sutra, this is our text, says the bodhisattva at the sight of that um, watches people suffer. He sees the pain caused when our attachments collide with stuff breaking up, like relationships, like parents, like possessions, etc. And so he says, I've got to find a way to wake him up. He says, remember? And then he makes the big, there's a big turning point where he says, it's the Buddha Dharma that will wake him up. Remember? And then he says what? And he says, I've got to find somebody who can explain the Dharma. And he sets out on the search. And the key to this one was, 
Bodhisattva says, if I can get one sentence of Dharma that will help me, says that the jargon is, purify my Bodhisattva practices. I will throw my body from the highest Tushya heaven down into a deep pit of fire. I could do that if necessary to get the Dharma. Right? And then there comes the test and he does it, passes the test. So clearly, what is it? The Bodhisattva is motivated to learn the Dharma. That's it. Because why? He's going to use it. He knows how much people are suffering and he wants to solve their problems. He is determined to learn the Dharma to help them get through stuff, figure it out. So he has now progressed through the rest of the fourth ground and what he, the connection he makes is, I should do that full time. I'm not going to divide up part of my day in salary or raising the next generation. That's the decision he makes. And <coughs> further, he says, I need, if I'm going to be able to hold more water of Dharma, quote, I need to get more, I need to strengthen my container, take more precepts. Okay, so look at it this way. What's the difference between life as a monastic and life as a layperson? Well, a lot. But you could, you, I wouldn't be wrong if I said one of the major differences of life as a monastic versus life as a layperson is where do you put your time during the day? What do you do during the day? And everybody, of course, has a different answer to that. But if you think of the life of the monastic, they are not raising kids. And raising kids is a good and proper occupation for men and women. That's what we mostly do. You know, and that's, thank goodness, you know, thank you mom and dad. Hey, I'm feeling glad for my mom and dad. That's a good thing to do. But the monastic says, if I spend my time there, I will not be able to progress the way I want to, to give me the, the medicine techniques, the healing techniques that I need to help people. So he says, if I could leave home, I would save time. Because during the day, the monk or nun is not raising kids. And they might teach them, but they're ultimately the responsibility. They don't go to sleep with the kids and wake up when the kid's sick, you know, and get them to school and plan for their future. That's a big difference. And, and that's real, you know. Number two, here's another one. The monk and nun are not serving military time. They are not militarized. That's really big. If you look at the bigger picture, you know, you're taking all these men, let's look at the monastic monks, taking them out of society in their prime years, they do not serve military purposes. That's a big difference. Naming any other group in society that gets exempted from a militarized comp component of their lives. Being a soldier is an important part of a citizen's duty. Protecting the country. No joke. I mean, that's very traditionally, you should do your time. The monastics do not. That's a big difference. Okay, another big difference. The amount of precepts they hold. 
Lay people, if, we, if they take refuge, superb. They've shaped their lives in a wonderful way. They've got a new identity. They're at home in the Dharma. They, they've joined the Buddhist family. Big changes spiritually. Two, if they can take the five precepts, oh my goodness. A lay person or anyone who takes the five precepts and, and endeavors to hold them, remembers that they took them and lives according to them, has already shaped their life in a direction beyond 97% of non-precept holders. In other words, most people. Most people live reacting to the things around them as opposed to proactively shaping, pre-choosing in advance some of the choices that will come to them. The precepts help us predetermine the answer to many of life's important choices that come up. No, I'm not going to kill. I'm not. Best I can. Right? No, I'm not going to steal. i find another way. So, the Buddha identified those five areas as key to your success on the spiritual path. The, left home, the, the lay person who takes five precepts has already pre-answered those issues as they arise. So they, you've given your life a shape. That's profoundly wonderful. In, in many religions, that would qualify you to be what's called a lay minister. That's enough of a difference from the ordinary rank and file person to give you profound insight into life, right? You become a different person. Just ask your, your colleagues who are not precept holders what they feel about you, the person in the office who is holding the five precepts. They know you're different. You don't do the Christmas party the way you did. You don't go to Reno the way you used to or Las Vegas. No, you're around the water cooler, you're different. Real, real stuff. Now, the monastic adds 10 or adds you know, five to the five, to get ten. And then, as these two young men are about to do in three months, add 248, <laughs> and then 58 on top of that. The Bhikshu precepts and the Bhikshuni precepts, and the, oops, sorry, the Bodhisattva precepts. No, you don't want the Bhikshuni precepts. The Bhikshu precepts and the Bodhisattva precepts. So the 250 Bhikshu precepts, you subtract the ten of the Shami, and then the 10 major and the 48 subsidiary bodhisattva precepts. So, that's a lot of training rules. But the result of that, the trade-off for that, is you can hold more dharma water if you think of a vessel. right? You become a vessel that can contain, relatively speaking, more dharma. So much so that that's the shape the Buddha wanted his disciples to be in. Right? Those precepts come to us directly from the time of the Buddha. Those are personally picked by him as things to observe. And then the Bodhisattva precepts go beyond that. So, just to say, that's a difference. What I, I began as I launched into that, I said, what are the major differences between a monastic and a non-monastic? If you were to sum it up in like, you know, the simplest terms, and you could continue in this vein. But I would say, what do you do with your time? You don't raise kids. Men don't serve military. And you hold more precepts. So that's big. And you could shape it another way and say, 
The answer is, it's what you do with your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind from morning to night. That's really key. Okay? A layperson has to use his or her six senses differently. The monastic does not. Does not have to deal with so much of the, the eyes and ears do. Right? So that's, that really helps. Now, can a layperson shape their life? Of course they can. They can design their environment so that they use their time the way a monk does, etc. But it's, it's different when you take those vows. But in general, a layperson could do those things. They would have to, you know, not they get out of military service and, and not raise kids and really train their six senses. But when you, and so you could. And there are many lay people who do and have real accomplishments. So it's not exclusive. But here's our bodhisattva who leaves home. And I would say the reason why is he can't stand to see the suffering in people he cares about and loves. And he's determined to find a way. So he says, I want to do that full time. I'm going to be a full time doctor. Okay? Further, Disciples of the Buddha, it's just as when a goldsmith smelts and refines pure gold, making it into fine jewelry. No other gold can match it. The Bodhisattva Mahasattva is also this way. When he stays on this ground, none of his roots of goodness can be matched by any of the roots of goodness of the grounds below. This analogy repeats. We've seen this one before. Um, The Buddha, as he was describing the grounds, and distinguishing them one from the other as he went up through the grounds, pulled out an image from the village or the city where wherever you meet a goldsmith. I don't think there are many villages where there's a goldsmith, but maybe, maybe there's a tradesman or a craftsman. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And... Most of us, I don't know, has anybody ever seen anybody smelting gold? Jewelry maker? Yeah? Okay. Where was that? Where, where was it? Where did you see it? Nice. And did they have a furnace? Did they have a furnace? Yeah. Gold smithing is a time-honored craft. Um, and it's 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 pretty close to magic. I mean, it's al- alchemy, you know. This the the what do you say? The the parallel science called alchemy is is often uses gold. And I I don't know the whole process, but when you put gold into a fire, it's it's very interesting. Gold is a relatively soft metal, and it doesn't change in weight, but it changes in purity. 
So you don't have less gold when you're done, but you have pure gold as you put it in the fire to refine out the impurities in gold. And you make it progressively closer to how many carat? 24. 24 carat gold. Why? Carat, not, not, not C-A-R-R-O-T. Not that kind of carat gold. Uh, it's C-A-R-A-T. Carat, 24 carat. A carat is a way to measure the quality of gold. And so the, the way the smith does is he puts it in the fire, gets it soft, and it comes out. I don't think he beats it because you, you don't want that to go shatter. But you, there's, he uses tools to refine the gold and smelt it and turn it. And at a certain point, it's, you can't, there's nothing more to come out of it. You can't refine it any further. But that goldsmith, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a trade, it's a guild. It's passed on often from master to journeyman to apprentice. And um, I, I think I've, when this came up earlier, we talked about Benvenuto Cellini. Benvenuto Cellini. Benvenuto Cellini, right? Yes, yes. Benvenuto Cellini was a famous goldsmith who, uh, you remember his dates? Was it like 16th century or 17th century, something like that? Anybody who's got their iPhone, don't touch it, right? No, no. Okay. Benvenuto Cellini was uh, a goldsmith who um, was so skillful, he made... Uh, gold implements for the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor and people like that. And if you go to the Louvre in Paris, you can see uh, implements wrought by Benvenuto Cellini. And they've got a, I remember it was a, f- a famous salt dispenser, a salt seller. And here, it's not S E L L. E-R, not somebody who sells salt. C-E-L-L-E-R. Seller meaning a salt holder. A salt shaker, we would say. It's a salt shaker made by Benvenuto Cellini. It was so magnificent that it, it became how we remember him. I mean, he made lots of things, but his salt cellar was, is um, very famous. I actually saw it, and I was amazed at how rough it is. It's rough. And gold... It's, it's rough meaning the, it's, it's the finest of, I don't know why it's so famous, but uh, I don't have those, that way to judge it. But the gold is not like super, uh, what do they say, fit and finish. The fit and finish is not flawless. It's, you can see the work done on it. It's obviously handcrafted. And it's something about the way he did it that makes it so special. But it's not, I mean, when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's, it's elemental. It's really elemental. And uh, there's another place. Oh, boy. If you go to Montserrat, Montserrat, which is above Barcelona, it's a Benedictine monastery, high in the mountains above Mount Barcelona. They have a museum. And uh, the gold there, they have emperor's crown jewels from you know, centuries in this little museum below Montserrat. And you can see how gold is considered, why it's considered so valuable. There are people who have gold fever. Anybody, if you've ever known a gambler, a real addicted gambler, 
when it comes to making a bet, they're not in control. Something comes over them. You know, their their face, their structure, their bones change, and their their eyes, you know, grow flames. And they, you know, they kind of see. I wonder how that's going to come out. Lady Luck, you know. People see gold, and the same thing happens. Some people, gold has a, a remarkable power to pull us out into desire. We want to own it. People will do. Uh, they'll kill for gold, obviously. And, interestingly, here we are in Berkeley, California, not very far from where the gold rush, gold fever, took over. 1849, that's why we have the 49ers. And it drew many, 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 many Chinese people from southern China over here. So, Chinese culture has a long relationship with gold. Jiu Jin Shan, right? San Francisco is called Old Gold Mountain. And boy, the streets are paved with gold. The seven cities of gold, right? The old mythology of Mexico. So we and gold have this long relationship. And why do, why do kings accumulate gold? Gold crowns, gold tiaras, gold necklaces. Because only kings can afford it. It's a rare element that has us a limited quantity. So it's just when a goldsmith smelts and refines pure gold, making it into fine jewelry. After the goldsmith, after Benvenuto Cellini has worked on it, no other gold can match it. The Bodhisattva Mahasattva is the same way. When he stays on this ground, the other Bodhisattvas, third ground, second ground, first ground, their good roots do not outshine his, her good roots. They're bright, but they're not as bright. Because <coughs> this Bodhisattva has been smelting his goodness, becoming better and better, making his inner qualities cardinal colors, really red, really green, really blue. They can, they're, they can change, but their nature is bright and unadulterated. So that's some of the ideas of the Bodhisattva here. And um, what, uh, what follows here is um, more descriptions of the Bodhisattva on the fourth ground. This, this ha- the second half of page 19, um, all the way down to page 21, are all uh, a list of qualities of the Bodhisattva. What is it like? When you cultivate your Buddha nature, starting from where you are right this minute, uh, to the stage of the fourth ground of the Bodhisattva, what comes out of you? Or what does your nature contain? What have you got inside that when you get to this place shines? Here's here's the list. Okay? Right? This is... I'm... It's important that we identify that this bodhisattva did not come from the heavens, did not come up out of the ground, right? This is somebody just like you who applied these dharmas in a method, you know, methodically, to the point where they were now called the fourth stage bodhisattva. And this is, this is what it's described as. Okay. Um, I have been... 
teaching college. And following uh, Dharma Master Chur, teaching a Buddhist philosophy class at Bond University in, <clears throat> in Robina, Gold Coast, Queensland. And it's an interesting place because um, somehow Bond University, this private college, private university in Gold Coast, has really good uh, PR with certain schools in America, one of them being University of New Hampshire. So go figure. Of my 22 students, four came from the University of New Hampshire. Um, of my 22 students, 15 were Americans who were you know, semester abroad or junior year abroad to Bond University where they, they get away from St. Louis University, from Tufts, from St. Mary's University in Maryland, you know, various places they come from all over the country to this small private liberal arts school in, in uh, Queensland. And what was so interesting about it, and I'm going to be sharing more from this experience as the weeks go by. What was so interesting is these are, by, for the most part, 19 and 20-year-olds who have never met the Buddha Dharma before, who have never meditated before, rarely, few had, and who are, as a result of that, blank pieces of paper when it comes to the teachings of the Buddha. And it's a wonderful opportunity to get their reactions to what they hear. You know, it's very instructive for me. I learned a lot by... Um, teaching 13 weeks of Buddhist philosophy to these young people, including a lot of meditation. And uh, watching the, the transition in 13 weeks from going from zero to 60 miles an hour, you know. And uh, what, what did they get? What, what did they understand? What did they totally not understand? What turned them on? What turned them off? Um, how did they respond? And um, who did and who didn't? You know. So that was that was uh, um, the experience that I've been doing, and I will um, share with you um, the my curriculum, what I chose to teach, because. I could do any. I teach anything I want to Buddhist philosophy. What is it? You know, the only thing that I had that was the same as what Hung Chur did was the textbook, which is a book on Buddhist ethics. And uh, the class is organized under uh, around a two-hour lecture on Tuesday, and then two hour-long tutorials on Wednesday. The students come to one of the two tutorials. So they get three hours a week of me. And the tutorial I chose to be meditation. So that on Wednesday, it's not a lecture. It's a practice with a description. You know, I, they actually do get to sit. And we did breath counting. And we did vipassana, rising, falling, observing the thoughts silently. We did metta. We did, uh, so loving kindness. 
we did Chan and um, the support practices around those. And that was really, really interesting because the students are writing for me. They're sending back essays, their reactions, what happened to them as they went through this experience. And some of them are really articulate. Some are not so. But that not so is also part of the learning experience. So it was really uh, helpful for me to see these very mainstream young men and young women who have rich, thick blessings. And with, with few exceptions, were very bright and, and good, good, good-hearted young people. Uh, watching them hear these principles for the first time, including what? Cause and effect. Including the question, who's in charge of your life? Including filiality, the idea that you're related to your parents, and that implies a responsibility to repay kindness. That one. Um, introducing to them Guan Shri and Bodhisattva. Um, introducing to them the notion that um, the religious heritage that they, ex- that they have inherited from their parents or their culture is a story among stories. It's not the only story. That's a, that's a challenging idea for a young mind. You know? If nobody tells you that only a portion of the world takes that story as the truth, there's another huge section of the world that has a different story about God, about life, about reality. That's, boy, you tiptoe around the edge of that one. Do I dare set that story down to listen to another one? What happens? Do I get zapped? Do I get sent to hell? You know, what if you've heard no story? You're a humanist, you know. Uh, What if you're a scientist and you have been told by your parents that, that religion is bad? or useless, or harmful. And now you're hearing a story about a man who went out in the forest because he couldn't accept the fact that he was going to die. Somebody who had never been defeated by anything. Not athletics, not military, not debate, not knowledge. He had championed anything until one day he realized, I'm going to die. And he said, I won't accept that. What's it? What's that story about? You know, have you ever wanted anything that badly? That you would leave everything behind with no Buddha in front of you, no Dharma in front of you, no Sangha in front of you, and you go off on your own to see if you can't beat mortality? You know, what kind of fire in the belly does that require? Right? Wow. And these kids are like, well, I wanted an iPad really bad. Does that count? <laughs> Yeah, you're in the right direction, but it's different. More, even more. So, yeah. So that was the experience, and I'm going to share with you the uh, the some of the feedback I got, and uh, a lot of it had to do with meditation, because in this class, for some reason, the uh, I was gifted with lots of athletes, intercollegiate athletes, uh, field hockey. Volleyball, water polo, track and field, champions. We had uh, Katie, who was the NCAA field hockey championship team. 
from Tufts University in Boston. And uh, she talked about uh, teamwork in her team and why she, her, her year won the NCAA, number one. And the year before, which was a more talented team and was supposed to win, totally did not. And it had to do with the coach and teamwork versus star stars, feeding the stars. And she and others said from their athletic background, meditation's for pussies. Meditation is for tree huggers and losers or woo-woo types. And when they sat down, something happened. And they went like, I just meditated you know, for the first time. What was that? And I do it again. And we just created a space where we gave them a method and encouraged them to do it again. And I shared with them all your stories. Alice, your story. I told them your story. Meditating in the Chan session and, you know, and feeling like you were throwing off a coat off your shoulders at which point you were able to sit. And it was like liberating. They're all going, oh, that's not for wusses, pussies. You know. So watching them encounter their own minds and encouraging them, saying, this is okay, you can do this. You know, keep looking, it's inside. And that was very neat because these kids had to write back to me. They had to explain what was going on. So it was a, a wonderful experience, very different than what I thought. I didn't think it was going to be much fun, but it turned out to be really fun and different from the year before. So, and one of the young women um, completely got Guan Yin. And before the semester was over, she was reciting and, and looking for strength from Guan Yin. And others didn't. Uh, this, you know, that's, I think that's probably true across. Uh, some of us are really ready for Guan Yin Bodhisattva. Others, not so. Uh, so, that was the the experience, and I'll, I'll <coughs> back it up with some of the essays um, selected so you can hear. Because I, I think it really helps to um, to hear other people's experiences with the Dharma and remembering what, what it was like when we first kind of met these ideas. Um, we had two meals at the monastery and invited the students to come. And then we had two round tables also where they came on a Sunday afternoon extracurricular, totally. And uh, one young woman, I'll share one story. One young woman, um, the, uh, in her, uh, one, on the final exam, I had a question which was um, an optional question. Share um, any thoughts that have changed regarding Buddhist philosophy since you took this class any of your thoughts or attitudes that have changed since you've taken this class? Share some of those. Write about it. 500 words. And uh, one young woman who was a the, the water polo player, um, she wrote very beautifully about filiality and how she had never been particularly related to her brothers and, and after hearing those principles just realized how much they meant. Anyway, she said... Um, she came to the second round table that we had at Gold Coast and uh, on a Sunday and she said the, the best part of her entire experience in Australia and perhaps 
one of the happiest moments of her life, I think she's 20, to this point, was sitting in the round table. And the question that we had to look into in the round table was talk about uh, an experience in your life of happiness. It can be a postcard, a snapshot, something that you've seen or heard or experienced. Share with us. It has to do with a time when you were genuinely happy. And if you want to reflect on what happened to it, that's okay too, but just share with us one experience that you had. She said, the best time, the best experience I've had in Australia was sitting in that circle and hearing John's mom, John is one of the neighbors at Gold Coast, whose uh, mother is from Argentina. And he is, he's an American, and he's brought his mom He's immigrated to Australia. He's brought his mom along. So she's an Argentinian mom joining the round table. And when it was her turn to talk about a, a, a picture of happiness, she said, with tears in her eyes, streaming down her face, the happiest time of my entire life was giving birth to my son. Because I had no awareness of the, the wonder and the joy of creating life from my body, she said. And she was very believable. And the student who was sitting there listening to this said, my heart opened. She had a sensation of her heart opening as John, the neighbor's mom from Argentina, talked about her happiest experience in life was giving birth to her son and realizing that she could create life. You know, and the other moms around the circle, including Qin Nai Shi, including Fam, who was sitting right there, they all went, hmm. <laughs> Fam's a great grandmother, mind you, right? Our Qin Nai Shi. She's saying, yeah. And all the guys are sitting there going, <laughs> so, very nice. And here's this woman, uh, the student, who is, you know, had kind of been there, kind of not. She said, that was it for me. That was just something changed. I go, yeah, that's great. All right, let us transfer the merit, and we got some pictures to look at. By the way, Chinai sure says hello to everybody. And thank you to the novices and the bond for getting her on the plane safely and making sure she got there. So that meant a lot to her. Share the fruits of peace 
With hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity, may their minds awake to great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave their grief and pain. May this boundless light break the darkness of their endless night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate and wise. Since it's been a while, I suspect, I don't think Jin Fonsher played his guitar, did he? Not. So you haven't heard guitar? We haven't, nobody's asked you to sing She Carries Me for a while. So we need to do that. It's been too long since I sang that. When Locke and I got to the airport uh, on my way to Australia, Cathay Pacific said, we are not taking that guitar on board. We had my guitar. And we had heard that that might have happened. So Locke had to bring my guitar back. And... uh, I was able to get another guitar that worked, but um, wow, that was the reason why they fly 777s now. That's their fleet going that way, and in in coach, 777 overhead bins are this wide. Guitars don't fit, so but that's tough. You all remember, yes. Okay. You remember how it goes? She carries me. It's Guanyin Bodhisattva song. She is bold. She is a light. Is it in the book? I on a hill. What page? In the dark of night. Page. She is a way, she is a deed, 
she is the dark where the angels sleep on northern hills where peace abides she carries me to the other side here we go she carries me she carries me she carries me to the other side she carries me she carries me she carries me to the other side and though I walk through valleys deep and shadows chase me in my sleep on rocky cliffs I stand alone I have no name I have no hope With broken wings I long to fly She carries me To the other side She carries me She carries me she carries me to the other side. She carries me. She carries me. She carries me to the other side. once more when day has dawned when death is nigh she carries me to the other side she carries me she carries me she carries me to the other side. She carries me. She carries me. She carries me, she carries me. 
to the other side. Okay. Thank you.